a supernatural thief on the run from the law. And then we visit a town in England that seems to have a taste for fire, fear, and the souls of children. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. We have a lot of good stuff for you today. So I want to start the story off with the tale of a photo that I happened to find while I was out walking today. Now, of course, talking about a photo can be difficult about on a podcast. And I'm going to start off by saying that this story is 100% true, because you could be thinking, oh, Jason's just LARPing, Jason's just trying to set up some narrative going on with the podcast, but today I was, and it's 100% true, I showed the picture to Veronica earlier, I kind of had to explain to her why the picture was more worrying than normal, but there could be a totally logical explanation for this. So let me actually go get the picture here. not like I can actually show it to you or anything but so I found this picture it's on one of those little instax fujifilm instax thing it's basically the kid version of an old polaroid camera like I had when I was a kid so it's a little picture it's probably about two inches by an inch and a half with a pink border on it and in the picture I'm gonna what I'm gonna do too just so you can have a frame of reference is I'm gonna take a photograph of this picture and I will put it up on the website So if you go to deadrabbit.com, you'll see a copy of the picture. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, you're probably looking at a photo of it right now. So let me explain to you a little bit about it. It's funny because I didn't plan on talking about this, so we'll see about those other stories. But the photo, you're going to see black smudges on the sides. That's not dirt or anything to make it look any creepier. It is the ink coming off of the back of the picture. The little film has uh, been slightly removed. When I found this, it was raining. So it wasn't in the best condition, but all the dirt isn't to make it look spooky. That is just ink. I got ink all over my hands when I picked this photo up as well. I had to carry it with me. But if you're not looking at the photo right now, let me explain it briefly to you. The camera is tilted slightly. So the the camera itself is tilted slightly. So it gives it a, a look as if someone wasn't looking straight on at their subject, but they're holding their camera at, at a, I don't know, 60 degree angle. In the picture, we see what looks to be an apartment. The apartment looks fairly, I don't want to say abandoned because that makes it too creepy, but you can see that the blinds are kind of askew. They're not lined up right. The only thing we see in the photo is an oven, a stove, I guess, whatever, that thing that you put food in, cabinets, the top of a chair, presumably a kitchen chair, a couple of knickknacks on a windowsill, and what appears to be a young woman cowering in fear of whoever's taking the picture. So, my first instinct, obviously, is that this is a staged photo some kids were messing around. And that is very likely. There's actually three scenarios here. One is that this is a staged photo, and these kids were messing around, and they either lost it, or they left it there intentionally. It was raining, so again, if someone was going to put this out there to be like, ooh, let's do some spooky stuff, you may want to have waited until it wasn't raining or put it somewhere where it wouldn't get wet. But again, it just adds to the creepiness factor that it was sitting out in the rain. It was sitting face up. I walked right by it and looked down, picked it up. 
The other option is this. So there is a famous... If you're into true crime, you most likely have seen this photo before. Let me actually get some more info on it. Again, I didn't plan on doing this part of the show. I showed it to Veronica, and I was going to save it, but I, I was just looking at it on my... Put it on the top of my fridge, and I said, no, I, I'm going to do that story now. So let me get some quick information for you here. So there is... If you're into true crime, you've come across this photo. It's a very famous photo. It's the last photo of Regina Kay. And who Regina Kay is, sorry, it's the last photo of a woman named Regina Kay Walters. And I'll also have this photo on deadrabbit.com. All the show notes are going to be in as normal, so if you forget the website or whatever, you can still locate this stuff. But I, I, I really think you should check it out. There is a photo of a woman named Regina K. Walters. She is... It was chilling the first time I saw it. It's actually still quite chilling, but... It's a photo of her standing in what looks to be an abandoned barn or a, a house that has been partially destroyed. She is standing there. Her hair is dyed black. She's wearing different clothes than she had on than when she was kidnapped. And she's cowering in fear in front of the camera... And the camera is tilted about 60, 70 degrees at an angle. So that's what made me a little more suspicious of the photo, is that it matches this very famous true crime photo. So the first option, again, is that it's completely made up, and it just coincidentally matches one of the most famous last photos of a victim. That It's pretty iconic. Again, if you in true crime, you've probably seen it. The second scenario is that it is fake. And it happens to, sorry, the second scenario is that it is fake. And the people who took it were making it match that photo in the first place. That was kind of the point. They go, oh, that's a creepy photo. Let's, let's do that. Let's do this sideways thing. This angle. The third option, the least likely of all the options, is that it's real. That this young, unidentified woman was really cowering in fear. That the photo was staged as some sort of fetish or warning or trophy. As of now, there's no been no reports of missing women in my area. So, and it's a small town, so it's not something that I'm super concerned about. I just think it's an interesting item. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to hold on to this. And again, I want to 100% assure you that this is not a LARP. This is not an ARG this is not some fictional narrative that I am building up for the podcast. This is 100% true. I, and I understand if you go, oh, Jason's just mucking about. Like, I, I get that you would think that. I know that I did the four short story uh, episodes a while back, but those were completely different intro music, completely different tone. They were labeled as such. I may continue to do those. I don't know. They, they, they still get hits, but I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that. But this is this is 100% true. As far as my part of the story of finding the photograph, I can't verify that the photo itself is not fake. But if it is fake, I had no part in taking the photo. I had no part in planning the photo. I had no part in anything like this. It was just laying on a rock as I was walking by. And I'm not so famous in my area that someone would be like, oh, Jason Carpenter walks by here. Let's leave him a photo and get on his podcast. So, yeah, really weird. I took it, I showed it to Veronica, she thought it was weird. I showed her the backstory and showed her the photo of the young woman who was also missing. The uh, dude who did kill her, I just looked that up, he's in prison, he's like in his 70s, so I don't think he's kicking it around in my neighborhood, but 
So yeah, weird. I'll keep you updated. I'll tell you this right now. There's probably no there's probably no ending to this story. There's probably I'm probably not going to come back a week from now and being like I was being chased by guys in cloaks or this woman went missing. To be honest, it probably is just a weird series of coincidences, but I will keep you guys updated. I wanted to go ahead and share that story with you. It's kind of different than what I normally show. It kind of falls into my personal experience ghost story type things. And I kind of prefer to cover stuff that I can show you articles and verify. But I'm going to post a photo of the photo. And I'll post a copy of the other photo of the young woman that I think this photo is emulating. And we'll go from there. Okay. So let's go ahead. I didn't plan on doing that. But I was like, because that actually just happened today where I found the photo. And And I was like, oh, we'll do it later. But no, I'm glad we did it today. So... And I know no one's going to believe me, but anyway, so let's, and that's fine. That's fine. I don't, yeah. It's good to be skeptical, even of me. Never hurts to be a skeptic of anybody. So, but it is true. So anyways, okay, and we're back. Actually, I, I took a bit of a break there. I talked about this next story. I went on for like 20 minutes talking about, I think it's an interesting story. I don't know if it's 20 minutes interesting. And I said it'd be easier for me to just re-record it than to have to edit it down. So I do think it's definitely an interesting story, but I talked about it way too long. What we're going to do is we're going back in time to the late 1800s. So we're after the Civil War. We're in the United States. We're in the South. And there was a man who was known as Railroad Bill. So Railroad Bill is half factual, half legend. Maybe the legends are true. I don't know. We'll explore that in a bit. But Railroad Bill was just a normal dude. Well, he's a little more than normal because nobody knew anything about him. He just kind of popped up in the area. We don't we don't know anything about his childhood or where he came from. And even people there, they weren't too familiar with who he was. He went by the name of Morris Slater. But even then, it seemed like that may not have actually been his real name. People, stories go that he originally started off as a circus performer and ended up getting a job at a turpentine company, which I guess somebody has to manufacture turpentine. Turpentine is paint remover. It's most popularly known as the dip that Judge Doom put shoes in. I'm sure a painter will be like, no, it's more popularly popularly known as paint remover. But anyways, worked at a turpentine company. He also enjoyed riding the rails. So there was a rail company back in the day called Louisiana. They they weren't really good with names back then. This railroad company was called... This railroad company was called Louisville and Nashville Railroad. So again, like, yeah, you're just kind of describing what it is. He hitches a ride on the rail. The brake man on the train finds him and picks him up and throws him off the train. And from this event, Railroad Bill vowed vengeance on the train company. But anyways... And this brakeman throws him off the train, uh, and he, like, falls into the dirt. And most people's first reaction would be like, whoa, I'm glad I didn't get mangled horribly by the train. Railroad Bill's first reaction is to pull out his rifle, which he somehow kept a hold of. If I was throwing a guy off a train, I wouldn't then be like, and take your rifle with you. But anyways, Railroad Bill takes out his rifle and opens fire on the brakeman. Train just keeps on chugging along. From that day, Railroad Bill (laughs) vowed vengeance on the train company. Now, getting thrown off a train isn't the easiest thing to endure, but Railroad Bill made it his life mission to go after the train company. He actually quit his job at the Turpentine Company. He's like, you can kill tunes on your own. And formed a gang that then hijacked trains and robbed them. And what they would do is they would put one guy on the train, they would hide a guy on the train, and be like, tip one, don't get thrown off. But they would put a guy on the train. And when the train would kind of be out in the middle of nowhere, the dude would open the door out and throw all the goods out of the train. 
The story goes that Railroad Bill would then get the goods, get the contraband. Is it contraband? Well, he would get the stolen property and then give it to the poor. He hated the railroad so much, he's like, I don't even want to make money from this. I'm just going to give all this stuff to the poor. So the people in the area saw him as like a folk hero, as a real Robin Hood type guy. He also, this is why, this the story is true crime-ish, but the reason why I'm covering it, I came across this in that great book that I love, National Directory of Haunted Places. There'll be a link below if you want to buy the book yourself, and I, which I highly recommend everyone doing. And it is affiliate link, so when you buy something, I get a little bit, but still. I highly recommend everyone getting this book. He had, the rumor goes that he actually had the power to shapeshift. And he could assume either the form of a big black dog or any inanimate object. Now, if I had a choice between becoming, like, yeah, being a big black dog helps you, like, run around and, like, menace people. But if I can become any inanimate object, I would just become a $100 bill. And then have my buddy buy, which back then was a ton of money, have a buddy buy stuff. And then, like, they hand over the $100 bill, and they don't notice the little picture of the guy, like, winking at the at, at his accomplice going, wink. And then after they get the goods, he can turn back into a human and run out the back door. That's how I would rob stuff if I could turn into inanimate objects. But anyways, I wonder, like, if you turned into a stagecoach and people were inside you, would that be comfortable? They're like, it's just like an eight-month ride through the wilderness. But anyways, so... I, well, if you turn into a stagecoach, is that inanimate? Technically, the coach part is you'd have to get some wheels put on you. But anyway, so Railroad Bill could turn into an inanimate object or a big black dog. The And that's the legend. The reason why that legend grew was because they could not catch this guy. First off, there was a $350 reward, which, again, is a ton of money back then. And as his crime spree progressed, at one point, okay, at one point he was fell asleep behind a water tower along these train tracks. These train employees found him, they grabbed his rifle, they grabbed his pistol, and then woke him up. They're like, get up, get up, Railroad Bill, we're assuming, because you're by a railroad. Railroad Bill jumps up, sprints 100 yards, pulls out another gun he had hidden, and starts a gun battle. And the dudes weren't prepared for that. They have to hide in this little shed, and he's like shooting at the shed, and the other guys are like, shooting. And around that time, this is just luck, this isn't supernatural, a train pulls up to the water tower, Railroad Bill jumps in the train, hijacks it to make his getaway. But he hated the train company so much, he drove the train about 200 yards, stopped it, got off the train, and started another gun battle with the people in the shed. And he kept shooting at them until he ran out of ammo and then just took off. Eventually, more law enforcement got called in, a sheriff was killed... At that point, the reward was raised to $1,250, which in today's money was $34,000. So everyone was out looking for this guy. You had Pinkerton detectives, you had vigilantes, bounty hunters, law enforcement, railroad officials, just normal dudes with shotguns. He ends up getting cornered in a swamp, and a hundred men are on his tail. Now, these are all different groups. So some of them are going to be expert trackers, some of them are just going to be moonshine people not like they're made of moonshine but you know like people who drink a lot of moonshine it's much easier to evade one group of people that are working as a group than it is to have to outrun basically a hundred different battle plans every group's searching for him on his own for five days he evades them in the swamp and that's again why people are like yep told you he's a shapeshifter i can imagine like these hillbillies walking through a swamp looking for this dude and there's just this giant tree there with like these cartoon eyes just like looking at him and he's like 
And then once they leave, he turns back into a human and runs away. Or he, like, turns into a frog. I guess that's not an inanimate object. He turns into a frog that doesn't move. So that's inanimate. And kind of probably pushing the boundaries there. But anyway, so he does all this stuff. He eventually does meet his end. He's at, like, a convenience store, like an old-timey shop. And two different teams of vigilantes come at the same time. And they riddle him full of bullets and he dies. And you go, well, that's proof that he's not a shapeshifter. However, I will argue that maybe he's simply shapeshifted into a dead body. To keep everyone that's inanimate, right? And then afterwards, he jumped out of his grave. Actually, I know for a fact that's not true. Because his body was on display for so long in so many different cities that judges had to say, you can't, you have to stop displaying this guy's body. He, he was that big of a local legend, that big of an outlaw. The people loved him. Law enforcement hated him. Whether or not he was a shapeshifter is definitely up for debate. I'd like to think that he was. I think that makes the world more interesting. He should have shapeshifted into a bulletproof vest at the end. But anyways, so again, he was such a local figure that they're actually, I believe it was in the 20s, they wrote a ballad for Railroad Bill. A little ballad. And I'm going to sing a part of it for you. Now, I can't play it for you because copyright, even though it was in the 1920s, the only recording I have is copy copyrighted but the lyrics themselves are not copyrighted railroad bill up on a hill lighting a cigar with the ten dollar bill now before you criticize the lyrics again this is an old-timey song so it's not like it's not like these guys are coming out with their a game like this was this people are like damn he rhymed hill with bill and bill again but anyways Railroad bill up on a hill, lighting a cigar with a $10 bill. Railroad bill took my wife. If I don't like it, gonna take my life. (laughs) Not only is he a shapeshifter, not only is he a train bandit, not only is he a, well, not modern day Robin Hood, but not only is he an American Robin Hood, he also cucks you. Yep, so that's the story of Railroad Bill. Now imagine that story I just told you expound it to 20 minutes and you'll understand why I cut out a bunch of stuff. And also, I went on too long talking about that. I can't, I didn't have room to talk about our next story. So let's go ahead and move on to our next story here. We're going to England. We spent a lot of time in England. We spent a lot of time in South America and we've spent a lot of time in England. I'd like to do some more like Australia, Eastern European stuff, African stuff. We spent a little bit of time in Africa. Crazy Cryptid Week was there, but now we're back in England. And we're going a little bit back in time here, which tends to happen. I don't know. Every time I go to England, I get caught in some sort of time warp. 1920s. Now, in Gillingham, England, which is in the state. They don't call them states over there or whatever. They call them like the cities are called shires and the states are called counties or something like that. But anyways, um, in the shire of and someone's like totally like, no, that's, that's not true at all. But in the shire slash town of Gillingham. In the 1920s, they had the Gillingham Fair. And one of the highlights of the Gillingham Fair was they would build this three-story structure out of wood and canvas. And you're thinking, that seems incredibly dangerous. That seems very flammable. Aha! So they built this three-story structure out of wood and canvas, and it was for a firefighter's demonstration. And they had this thing. It's called the Bridal Party Rescue. I don't know if that's what it's actually called, but that's what we're going to call it. They had this event that was a bridal party rescue where you had Two firefighters who would act as newlyweds. So they'd go up there. I don't know if they put on tuxes and wedding dresses because they're both dudes because this is the 1920s. But anyways, they go up there and they have a bridal party and they're in the structure. And this is at a fair. So people are watching this like you have this huge crowd watching this event. And then you have flares go off and smoke go off and everyone goes, oh, no, help me, help me, firemen of Gillingham. And the firefighters come and they 
bring out their ladders and they rescue the people out of the structure and everyone claps and they're like, well, these are very efficient firemen. And then they start a real fire and they burn the structure down and they just put it out with their hoses. And everyone would be like, yay. There's nothing else to do back then. I mean, like that was the highlight of your year when you got to see that happen. And it went on without a hitch for quite a while. So, But eventually there was a hitch, so you know where this story's going. In... 1929. So now we're on July 11th, 1929. It's fair time. Everyone's like, oh, dude, are you going to go see the canvas structure burned? Oh, yeah, totally, man. Of course, I'm going to see the canvas structure burned down. That's all I'm going to do this year. So they go out there. And for this bridal party this time, you had nine boys and six men. So you had two of them were the bride and the groom. And the rest of the people were pretending to be the wedding guests. And for what And this is where the story goes weird, and we're going to explore this more. But for whatever reason, the smoke bombs and the flares, they don't go off. Instead, the second stage starts. So people are in this building. You have a total of 15 people here. The fire starts. Now, that's supposed to happen after everyone's out of the building. Again, it's three stories. It's 40 feet tall. And... It catches on fire. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science to know that canvas and wood are incredibly flammable. The building just ignites. Now, the firefighters on the scene, on the ground, who were there to be there to do the mock rescue and then put the fire out afterwards, they realize immediately what's going on. They they just flame shoot up the building. They look at each other, drop their tea and crumpets, grab their gear, and start trying to put out the fire. But the audience thinks that it's part of the show. They're like, man, special effects have gotten really good this year. Normally, there's just smoke coming out of the windows, but look at those flames go. The audience is cheering at this fire. The people in the building are screaming for help. They immediately know that things have gone sideways because some of the adults in the building are firefighters. They immediately begin screaming for help, and the audience is now even clapping even harder. They're like, this is the best performance those people have ever given. Normally, they're just like, help me, help me. But these guys actually seem like they're crying for their lives. This is amazing. The crowd is cheering them on. Firefighters are probably just like, shut up. Actually, the firefighters probably didn't even hear them. They're just blasting this thing with water. And the audience continued to applaud until the first boy jumped off the top of the building on fire smashed into the ground and the audience just kind of like slowly stopped clapping they're watching this and then another boy jumps out of the building on fire crashes into the ground of the people who were there so there was 15 people in the building of the people who were there 13 of them died at the scene horribly burned choked out on smoke two of them leapt to their deaths on fire two were severely injured and then they died later So out of the 15 people in the building, all 15 died. They don't know how the fire started. They don't know who started the fire. They don't know what happened at the event. They just know it was this horrible tragedy. Basically, the city shut down. There was this huge funeral. They're all buried in the same location. So I read about that event, and I was like, that's just a tragic event. But what's weird, it is weird that all this time we don't know who started the fire. Like, you think that would be one detail you would know. Because there's someone's job was to start the fire. Because they're firemen. They're not like mucking about. They're not just like throwing matches and stuff waiting to go off. It's a very controlled burn. But no firefighter was ever accused or brought to trial or anything like that. The fire just started. And you go, okay, just a tragic coincidence. Technological failure. Whatever. 22 years later, in the same town, Shire, of Gillingham, there was a bus and a street light 
out of all the streetlights in the world that could have went out, one streetlight goes off. Bus drivers driving down the road. This bus driver worked for a company called the Chatham and District Traction Company. They they needed a someone needs to invent a time machine and go back in time and teach people how to name stuff. The Chatham and District Traction Company, which you can actually shorten District Traction to Distraction, oddly enough. The street lights out, bus drivers going down the road. Now, normally it wouldn't be a huge issue, but something else was going on in the street. And also, the bus driver did had um, had his side lights on, but he didn't have his headlights on, which was actually, at the time, totally legal. You didn't have to drive the headlights on. And this was later, obviously, and that's why the street light being out, him not having the headlights on, is an issue. While he's driving this bus down the road, there is a march. There is a, a parade of... 52 young kids of the Royal Marines Volunteer Cadet Corps, between the ages of 9 and 13, marching down the street in their nice little uniforms. They're dark uniforms. That doesn't help. He doesn't see them, with the streetlight being out and him not having any headlights. He plows into them. The bus driver didn't even know he hit him. It was a double-decker bus, and they're little kids. So, I mean, as tragic as that is, I mean, it'd be hard to see. He runs over him, and he doesn't even realize that he has hit anything until he started to feel the car wobbling like he was driving over loose stones, which would have been bodies caught up in the wheels. Witnesses at the scene say, we don't believe that, because the minute he impacted them, you just hear it screaming everywhere. They believe that he knew much quicker that he had hit these kids and for whatever reason kept going. Out of the... I mean, okay, now, you're driving a bus down the road and there's 52 kids marching in the intersection you have to have this is this is school shooter numbers of the damage he did like i imagine if a bus hits a bunch of kids at a certain point they're going to start moving out of the way or if he hits them broadside he's only going to take out a chunk of them out of 52 kids 24 killed 18 injured so more than half of the kids in that group got ran over Or maybe a couple got trampled. At the time, it was the highest loss of life in any road accident in British history. I saw both of these events, and I thought, yes, coincidence. Both of these events relied on just a little problem. And and we see that with a lot of stuff. Like plane crashes, they can say, say it was just this one instrument, or this could have been prevented if just this one little piece was in place or whatever. But it seems chilling, That both of these events separated by 22 years in the same city with mass loss of life of a lot of kids both happened through happenstance. They both happened by sheer bad luck. Him not having his headlights on, like I said, that was legal at the time. So they didn't, that probably wouldn't have made an issue. But the street light going out and him running over the kids and then the light, the fire mysteriously being set before it was supposed to and nobody was ever held accountable for that. I was looked at these two things and I thought, this sounds very like dairy, Maine. This sounds very like a Pennywise type situation. And I started <laughs> now, again, a lot of times people go, man, you're really skeptical. But I don't always start off like that. So with this, I go, they were 22 years apart. Let's see what happened 22 years after the bus accident. Let's see what happened 22 years before the Gillingham fire. Like I tried to look for some sort of pattern, some sort of Pennywise style pattern. I couldn't find any, to be fair. 
But it, it does seem in that short amount of time that all these kids were killed, it really does give the two stories a connected, really creepy vibe. And not only were mass amounts of kids killed, but the way they were killed was terribly brutal. Is it possible that the town of Gillingham is powering itself <laughs> from the torment and death of children? If I wanted a libel lawsuit, I would say definitely. If I wanted to be skeptical about it, I'd say no, they're just two tragic events in the same area, and you can look all over the world for tragic events in the same area, and they may meet some sort of pattern. But there's a part of me that thinks that there's something a little more creepy going on there. I have no proof of that, and it hasn't been replicated. I can't prove it. I just get it. It just gives me a creepy feeling, a creepy hunch that there is something there or or more importantly there was something there that made these events happen i have no proof of that whatsoever at all just a hunch but sometimes a hunch is all you really have deadrabbitradio at gmail.com is going to be our email address you can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio twitter is at jason o carpenter dead rabbit radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast you don't have to listen to it every day but i'm glad you listened to it today have a great one guys <laughs>